It is estimated that 3 to 5% of all couples desiring pregnancy will suffer recurrent pregnancy loss. Recurrent pregnancy loss is one of the most frustrating and difficult areas of reproductive medicine because there are often many unanswered questions. This is disheartening to both the couple and the physician. You are listening to ReachMD, and I am your host, Dr. Patrice Basanta-Henry. And with me today is Dr. Keenan Omertag. He's an assistant professor of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. Omertag, welcome. Thanks, Patrice. Good to be here. Today we will be discussing the recognition and management of recurrent pregnancy loss. So Dr. Omertag, will you tell me a little bit about what exactly is recurrent pregnancy loss? So that's a great question. The definition of recurrent pregnancy loss is two consecutive losses in which those losses are defined by either clinical evidence of pregnancy, either you can see the pregnancy on an ultrasound and then it's the pregnancy is then subsequently lost or you have histopathological evidence of a pregnancy. So for example, a patient who had um a miscarriage and then maybe brought products of conception or had uh that went to pathology and confirmed that there was indeed a pregnancy there um patients who um have said yes i had a positive home pregnancy test and then it went away and i had a period who's had that patients who have had that two or more times while frustrating do not technically meet the definition of recurrent pregnancy loss but we still you you know we still take care of those patients and kind of educate them about um what the implications are what the causes might be of that and then moving for and then go forward with their care expanding on that do the losses have to be consecutive no the losses do not necessarily have to be consecutive patients who have had a live birth in between two clinical pregnancy losses for example would still meet the definition of recurrent pregnancy loss so yes you are correct they do not have to be consecutive so do we know why this happens so we have some ideas why th- this happens and most typically the biggest reason has to do with genetics and more specifically genetics of the embryo human reproduction is horribly inefficient and that inefficiency decreases with age so the most common reason people miscarry is the embryo itself was chromosomally abnormal and not because the patient is you know there's anything specifically wrong with the patient it's just that again human reproduction there are a lot of events that have to happen and a lot of times those things don't happen correctly so the embryo that implants may not have been chromosomally normal and it just stopped growing and that was nature's way of ending the pregnancy and miscarriage so that's the most common cause of miscarriage in fact up to you know 50 to 70% of um products of conception that are tested after a miscarriage maybe are chromosomally abnormal patients get frustrated when they have recurrent pregnancy losses we know that so are there any common causes that we can look for when we're working this diagnosis up yeah so I I first tell them to say look genetics is a big big cause of this and I educate them on kind of what I just described and then there are some other avenues that we need to investigate the next one is kind of an anatomic one so we this kind of speaks to a uterine factor making sure you know do they have any filling defects in their uterus like polyps or fibroids is there um do they have a history of infection in their uterus that can put them at risk for scarring um 
do they have an abnormal uterine configuration? So could they have a uterine septum, for example, which is a membrane that divides the um, cavity and may create a less than optimal environment for implantation. So a simple ultrasound is a way in which we can initiate that workup. The other area of emphasis is hormonal. Patients who may be diabetic are at increased risk of having a miscarriage, so we want to screen patients to make sure they don't have signs of diabetes. So I will, for example, check a hemoglobin A1C. You want to check for thyroid disease, so I'll screen for it with a TSH. And that's a relatively controversial area, specifically screening for subclinical hypothyroidism with or without even screening for antibodies, thyroid antibodies. Um, in patients with recurrent pregnancy loss, I will just screen with a TSH, and then I have recently kind of shifted towards checking thyroid antibodies as well. If the thyroid antibodies are positive, I will start treatment with Synthroid, and this is, again, a controversial area. The other things I'll do, I'll check a prolactin level, again, if they have irregular periods, if they have signs of galactorrhea, obviously this makes sense. And then the other things I'll do, I'll check ovarian reserve screens. Um, this is basically checking an anti-malarian hormone level. Again, this is in my practice, an anti-malarian hormone level, an FSH, and an estradiol level. And then I'll also check an antral follicle count when I do their ultrasound. And these things are very helpful in telling me you know, is their body specifically, you know, are their ovaries starting to act older than their age? And could that be the reason why they're having recurrent pregnancy loss? They might be 34 years old, their ovaries may be acting older, um, and as a result, they might be have a higher propensity for making aneuploid or chromosomally abnormal embryos. The final area that I will focus on is the autoimmune area. And this is specifically um, for patients who have three or more losses. I will look for something called antiphospholipid syndrome, which is associated with blood clotting. It's associated with preeclampsia in a prior, if they've had a prior live birth, specifically um, in the severe preterm, preterm uh, gestational age. Um, and these, this is blood work that I'll typically do. So those, are, those kind of summarize the areas that I focus on when I'm working up patients with recurrent pregnancy loss. And, you know, I have to say, before I even start the workup, I tell patients there's about a 50 to 75% chance that all of this workup will be completely normal, and I don't get to give you a reason why this is happening, which, as you alluded to, makes this diagnosis very challenging. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to ReachMD, and I am your host, Dr. Patrice Basanta-Henry. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Keenan Omertag. He's an assistant professor in the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at Washington University in St. Louis, and we are discussing recurrent pregnancy loss. So, Dr. Omertag, we've talked about the common causes of recurrent pregnancy loss, and there are quite a few. So when we have the patient sitting in the office, what would you recommend the initial approach be? So I, I first set the stage for them by saying, look, I mean, there are some things we need to look at. We need to look at genetics. We need to look at anatomic, hormonal, and autoimmune things. But just bear in mind that 50 to 75% of the time, I may not get an answer, but it's still we need to check because if there is a problem, those things can be fixed. 
And then I tell them, I say, regardless of what we do today, if everything is normal, you still have a good chance of having a live birth with your next pregnancy. So the patient who walks in the door who has had two or three losses and no prior live births, I look them in the face, I say, look, you know, with your next pregnancy, you have a greater than 50% chance, probably on the order of 55 to 60% chance that you are going to take home a baby with your next pregnancy. And I think that's powerful information to give them. Now, depending on how old they are, depending on whether they have underlying infertility, that the time to that next pregnancy may vary. But I think it's important to at least reinforce that point to the patient so that they don't come in think because a lot of people think okay we're going to the doctor they're going to fix this but a lot of times this is something that's again what makes current pregnancy loss so hard is sometimes you won't find something specific to fix and in the absence of that they still need to understand that they still have a good chance of taking home a baby with their next pregnancy but my job is to kind of say look you're on a certain timeline because everyone walks in and they have a specific timeline where they want to get this, where they want to have this live birth. And that's where, you know, we can talk about different treatment options. So you mentioned there are multiple causes of recurrent pregnancy loss, but is there an actual treatment that we should be using for each patient? So that's a good question. It depends on a, did, you, did your workup yield anything that can be treated? And if so, then those treatments are um, pretty well documented. But some things kind of cross over into controversial areas. So let me start with kind of simple interventions and then go into kind of more advanced interventions that, uh, you know, I find myself talking about in my practice. So, for example, someone who has – there's a thought that, oh, the reason I'm miscarrying is my progesterone levels are low. I'm not making enough progesterone. Progesterone is a hormone that is made after one ovulates, and it helps support the growing pregnancy for eight weeks until the placenta takes over. So the natural inclination is that, oh, I should be on progesterone. And every patient has a friend who was on progesterone, who helped, and that helped them get pregnant. The, the data would suggest that in patients with recurrent pregnancy loss who have had you know, one or who have had two losses non-consecutively, the use of progesterone to support the luteal phase may not be beneficial. However, a meta-analysis has shown that in th- patients with three consecutive losses, progesterone may play a role. Ultimately, it comes down to a discussion between myself and the patient whether I'm going to give them progesterone. And if we decide to give them progesterone, I prefer to give it vaginally because absorption is much better, and I prefer to initiate the start of that five days after ovulation. Ovulation, you know, so what I would tell them is use an ovulation prediction kit. Five days after the kit turns positive, you should start progesterone, which is technically five days after the LH surge and three days after ovulation. So that's one intervention, but it's very controversial. Another intervention would be empiric treatment with antibiotics. Again, a very controversial area. So again, in this setting, the thought is that the patient has some underlying infection that is creating a hostile environment that precludes them from proper implantation of the embryo. So in these patients, I will treat them 
you know, with recurrent pregnancy loss, I'll offer them treatment, empiric treatment with doxycycline, 100 milligrams, twice a day for two weeks. And some people even go so far as to treat the partner. Um, but I don't think that's necessary. So I just treat the patient and then let them have timed intercourse. A lot of the patients I see have a very, um, are very, you know, and most patients in general with recurrent pregnancy loss are very eager to have a live, you know, they want to have a live birth now. What can you do for me now so that I can help, they can help me have a live birth? Well, if you, you know, if they have an underlying infertility, it makes sense to move forward with fertility treatments. If they don't, I still sometimes will move forward to fertility treatments depending on their age, how aggressive they want to be. So those fertility treatments are as simple as giving someone clomiphene citrate to try to get them to boost the number of follicles that they make per cycle and therefore release more than one egg per month. That increases what's called their fecundability, which is their likelihood of getting pregnant in a given month. We, you know, you can go down the whole line of fertility treatments to the most aggressive, which would be doing in vitro fertilization and actually testing each individual embryo to determine whether the embryo is chromosomally normal and then transferring it back into the patient. Some people argue that this should be standard of care. At this point, there's no data to suggest that IVF is any you know, with genetic testing is any better than just IVF alone, in which you're actually selecting presumably a better quality embryo. So there's a lot of um, controversy in this area regarding, you know, should these patients be getting these assisted reproductive technologies. So neither, none of this is standard of care. It's just a discussion with you and the physician and based on how aggressive the patient wants to be. Could you speak briefly about the use of aspirin or anticoagulation for these patients? Sure. So empiric treatment with aspirin, you know, 81 milligrams, in someone who has unexplained recurrent pregnancy loss, so patients who the workup is completely normal. Another controversial area, aspirin, progesterone, these are relatively harmless things with little risk to give to patients. So in some settings, people will just say, well, I'm just going to give you aspirin or give you progesterone, see what happens. And then there's always invariably patients who get pregnant and they think it's the aspirin or the progesterone. And it may be, but the reality is they probably would have taken home that pregnancy had they not been on those medications. So it's kind of hard to reconcile, is it the medication or would they have just gotten pregnant? The data would suggest that aspirin does not make a difference in patients with un alone does not do any better than just giving someone a sugar pill. That being said, I take it case by case. If a patient says, you know, I, 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 this doctor put me on aspirin, I want to take it, I say fine. I just tell them, look, it's probably not going to change your outcome. If it will make you feel better, you can go ahead and take it. What I found just anecdotally is a lot of patients just forget to take it because they're like, well, I don't remember it being that strong of a um, benefit. So. They're not even taking it consistently. So that's my, my comment on aspirin is it might help. The data would suggest it doesn't, but it eases a lot of, uh, a lot of the patients, and I make it a case-by-case -case decision. Anticoagulation with heparin, Lovenox, unfractionated heparin, um, fractionated heparin with or without aspirin in patients with unexplained recurrent pregnancy loss is also 
not supported by the data. Okay, so that being said, I typically do not give them give those patients empiric aspirin and or uh, fractionated unfractionated heparin as a tool to reduce their likelihood of having a um, another miscarriage. However, if patients test positive for antiphospholipid syndrome, there is an indication to give them aspirin plus heparin with a positive pregnancy test. And in those patients, I will anticoagulate them. One comment is, another comment to this is, I had a patient recently who had a severe autoimmune disease, Sjogren's syndrome, and she had three consecutive losses. She did not have antiphospholipid syndrome antibodies, but I went ahead and treated her anyway with unfractionated heparin and uh, aspirin. So again, case-by-case case basis, again, just being transparent with the patient about what the standards of care are and what's, what may benefit and what's not. So you mentioned the likelihood of taking home a live birth with a diagnosis of recurrent pregnancy loss is pretty good. It's over 50%. Does the prognosis change based on the underlying cause, or is there ever a time when the prognosis is so poor that you do not recommend attempts at pregnancy? So the age of the woman has a lot to do with this. So the 42-year-old who's had five losses in the last, you know, two years you're, is different than the 25-year-old who's had two losses and a live birth. So again, it's a case-by-case -case scenario. So age is the biggest uh, predictor. So rarely have I encountered a situation where there's been a medical indication to just Stop. Okay, you've had five losses. You need to stop. Okay, that is, un, you know, I've never encountered that. What I have encountered is patients who are just so mentally exhausted from the highs and lows of getting pregnant, of being hopeful that this might be the one, and then having those hopes dashed the minute, you know, they start bleeding and ultimately miscarry in, in the face of attempts to try to mitigate that from happening. So, this is, again, where I'm sitting down and just kind of figuring out what are their goals? How aggressive do you want to be? Um, what have we tried? Uh, what may or may not work at this point? And I will always keep pushing. I will always be their cheerleader. Um, but to the extent that I will also recognize, okay, you know, this may not be, you know, in your best interest. I utilize reproductive health counselors a lot for this particular subset of patients because it's really hard. You know, they're talking, you know, my friend had my friend has a baby. You know, everyone's got babies around me. It's hard for these patients with recurrent pregnancy loss mentally and they need support and sometimes while well intended that support doesn't come naturally from their friends or family. So reproductive counselors are very helpful uh, for these patients. Dr. Omatok, we're reaching the end of our time together. Do you have any final thoughts that you wanted to share with us on this topic? I echo your sentiments about recurrent pregnancy loss being a devastating diagnosis. It's a hard thing for people to grapple with. But again, there is a silver lining here, and that is regardless of how many miscarriages you've had, if you've had fewer than four, you know, you still have a very good chance of taking home a baby with your next pregnancy. 
So remember that. And if you have any concerns or you're not sure what, if anything, you should be, do, should be doing, don't hesitate to talk to your OBGYN. You can talk to a high-risk obstetrician. You can talk to a reproductive endocrinologist. All of those folks will be able to guide you and will give you a similar uh, message that I've shared with you today. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Omertog. It was a pleasure having you on with us today. Thanks, Patrice. Thanks for having me. And to download this podcast and others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com. We welcome you to share, like, and comment on this podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Patrice Basanta-Henry, and you've been listening to ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge. Thank you for listening.